Hello and welcome to another episode of Brave UX. I'm Brendan Jarvis, Managing Founder of The Space In Between, the home of New Zealand's only specialist evaluative UX research practice and world-class UX lab, enabling brave teams across the globe to de-risk product design and equally brave leaders to shape and scale design culture. Here on Brave UX, though, it's my job to help you to put the pieces of the product puzzle together. I do that by unpacking the stories, learnings, and expert advice of world-class UX design and product management professionals. My guest today is Jane Austen. In July, Jane joined Digitas UK as their Chief Experience Officer, where she's been charged with creating best-in-class connected experiences for the agency's clients, which include GSK, Samsung, British Telecom, and Honda. This is somewhat of a homecoming for Jane, as between 2005 and 2007, Jane worked at the agency's predecessor, LBI, as an experience architect. Before Digitas, Jane was the chief design officer for Flow Health, the company behind one of the world's most popular apps for helping women to prioritize their health and take control of menstruation. From late 2018 to late 2020, Jane was the Director of Product Design at Babylon Health, an online healthcare company soon to launch on the NASDAQ that's on a mission to put accessible health and affordable healthcare in the hands of everyone on earth. There, Jane led a global team of 100 talented designers, researchers, content specialists, product and operations people, rebranding the business and completely transforming the patient experience. To give you an even better idea of the depth of Jane's design leadership experience, she was also the Director of Design and UX for Moo, an award-winning online print business, and the Head of UX for The Telegraph, one of the United Kingdom's leading newspapers. An internationally recognized design leader, Jane has been a keynote speaker at industry-leading events such as Mind the Product, Leading Design, and UX London. In her spare time, if she has any, Jane is an advisor to Founders Academy, a new type of business school that aims to harness technology to build a better world. Funny, insightful, and incredibly self-reflexive, it's my great pleasure to have Jane here with me on Brave UX today. Jane. Welcome to the show. Hi there. Hi. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you, Jane. And just before we go on, you're from Glasgow in Scotland and I'm from New Zealand. So I just wanted to check that you understood more than just a few words of what I've just said. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, good. That's good. We're off to a good start then. <laughs> Jane, you bring, having a, had a look at your previous talks, a refreshingly honest amount of energy to how you talk about leadership and your career and the things that you've learned during that career, which has been a stellar career. Have you always been so forthcoming? Okay, so yeah, possibly. I think it's maybe just a very Scottish way of being, is sort of like no bullshit and it doesn't mm. really occur to me to do anything other than just sort of talk about things honestly. Yeah, I mean, it's it's such it's such a refreshing thing, particularly being somebody who operates at you know very senior levels of design and leadership. I had wondered, you know, given the amount of politics that can be inherent in large organisations that are trying to do big things, has that ever worked against you? Possibly. Um, I'm not sure that I would know, but I bet it has. Mm. And I think that's um, as I get older. I think possibly being more aware of the politics. Um, I think I'm a bit naive in many ways because. I'm quite straightforward and I didn't even realise there was sort of office politics until after I'd been working quite some time and then I started realising that lots of people didn't like each other and there was gossip and somehow it all passed me by. So I think I think now I'm trying to be sort of more nuanced, not really get involved in the gossip or anything like that, but just be aware of the patterns and eddies lurking below the surface. Mm, that's interesting. I suppose that is one of the benefits of experience, isn't it, as you start to be able to see yeah. patterns and, and, and know yeah. which eddies to avoid. <laughs> yes, yeah. exactly. Exactly. But yeah, probably, I'm sure had I been able to, you know, play the game and operate it in a very political way, I might have been much more successful in, in previous jobs. Um, and it's definitely something to reflect on. Now, speaking of jobs, you've just taken on a new job this time, as I mentioned mm -hmm. in, in your introduction at Digitas, which is an agency. Yeah. So you've gone from big tech product companies yeah. back to agency. And that yeah. seems like quite a different design leadership challenge, at least to me. What's 
your vision behind this move yeah. back to agency and this new leadership setting? You know, what are you really setting out to achieve? Well, being client side, you know, it was great. It was brilliant working on products, but often product and marketing were completely separate. Sometimes even like kind of at each other's throats, I observed, talking of office mm. politics, not sharing <laughs> data, product would decide to build something, but market would, marketing would want to build something else. And it just seemed absolutely crazy. Being in different organizations and sort of doing some consulting for organizations or talking to friends who were client side or attending conferences, there, there was a bit of a theme, which is that the, the CMO and the CPO were, were not really acting in a united way. They, they weren't sure, not that they weren't sharing data, data was just siloed work was siloed, often that there wouldn't be an input for marketing and what to build or product wouldn't be having an impact on marketing. And it just felt like very separate worlds. And often a lot of organizations have real problems with data as well. You know, data again is silos. They don't have a single view of the customer. They're really struggling. And I, this is the reason I joined Digitas is that it's wanting to try and connect all of these pieces, which are often really fragmented, particularly in legacy um, organizations. So, you know, you think about your experience with any brand, you just, you don't think, oh, that's the marketing director talking to me. I know there's a CRM people talking to me. You just think <laughs> it is the brand. But actually, you've got lots of different people talking to you in different ways, and it's not orchestrated. And customer experience is more than the product. Your experience with a, a brand or with um, with any kind of product is more than just sort of like using the app. It's what the marketing's like, the email, the follow-up, the customer service. And I think the opportunity of being able to work with an organization that's bringing this all together and create really, really interesting and excellent customer experiences, which is another thing as well, because customer experience has kind of become a thing and it's sort of coming, it's been often run by people who are previously responsible for like the call centers. So then you've got like another part of the organization and they're working in a slightly different way again. And again, things get fragmented and people are sort of reinventing the wheel. So you see these people doing CX and customer journey mapping. Well, actually that's been a UX thing for years. And it's, it's just lots and lots of fra fragmentation of data, of practice, of people within one organization. So the opportunity of bringing this together and like creating a really fantastic experience, not just a fantastic product, but a fantastic experience is what's brought me to Digitas. And no one creates fantastic experiences, particularly not at the scale at which you're going to be creating them by themselves. Sure. Have you inherited a team or what does yeah. it look like at the moment? What's that? What, what does that people challenge look like? So there is a team, but we are expanding, you know, there's, there's lots of people, lots of different clients, I think, that need someone like us to come together and to help them deliver great experiences, to combine data. So, yeah, I'm definitely hiring. I'm hiring people who have that sort of product mindset, that um, product design mindset where you're sort of data-led, you do experiments, you're always trying to think about value, you have shippable increments, you make sure that you're doing proper discovery, you're concentrating on the customer and bringing that rigor and discipline, but spreading it more widely, perhaps across campaigns or across CRM, or just thinking about how everything connects. So I want, I'm looking for people, I think, who are both designers, but who have that kind of rigorous mindset to understand how everything fits together. Maybe a bit of like entrepreneurial business um, aspect to them as well. So like we're there to help the clients have a, a successful business. So it's not just about being customer centered, it's about understanding the business context as well. So yeah, I'm looking for people, rigorous thinkers, analytical thinkers, great designers, people who really get business, who have that entrepreneurial streak. Yeah. And the, the pace, the rhythm of agency is quite different to the pace and the rhythm of being embedded in a tech product company. Like how yeah, has actually, how has that been that that shift back to agency been for you and like what could people coming from tech into agency expect from that mm -hmm. change of pace and rhythm? Well, it's actually not as hectic. I think agencies <laughs> have this um, this sort you of heard reputation it here, people, really not as hectic. And, <laughs> yeah, I mean, coming from startups and scale ups and things, you know, I'm actually finding mm. the pace at Digitas like you know, it's it's really it's reasonable. There's time to think and consider. It's time to do research, to stay in uh, abreast of recent terms, to understand technology. Yeah, the pace of the pace of agency life is, you know, it's fast, but it's not as mad and as hectic as like big startups and state scale ups, and because they have a runway, you know, they have to get stuff shipped and they have to have a business before the money runs out. But I mean, it is true. I think I need to think of another way to say it because startups have they basically have to get to product market fit and get philosophy and get customers before the money run out. And with an agency, you kind of don't have that kind of manic impetus. You know, it's not all or nothing. 
but there's d- different pressures, right? Because if you don't keep pressures. the clients happy or the clients' businesses yeah. change, you can lose the account, and so there is still that yeah. um, that healthy level of, well, hopefully healthy level of anxiety that sits over. People. Yes, it's true. But then I think the other thing that we want to do, or I want to do, is is not really have a you know do projects, but instead be a partner for clients. You know, clients, I think there's so, you know, there's a staff shortage. Everyone knows there's a shortage of skilled people. Some clients don't need like a, a full product team. Some of them don't need a full product team for the entire year. They might just need people to do discovery or to shape a new proposition. So being a partner with a set of clients is really interesting as well, because you're there's points where you can really sort of impact or have the inflection point of, you know, bringing a team in and doing some kind of workshop or delivering an MVP helping people really understand what an MVP is, helping people understand their customers. So having a long-term relationship with clients rather than just coming in and doing a, like building a microsite and leaving, that's that not really what Digitas is about. It's about having long-term relationships where you can help clients be customer-centered and be more connected. So I like that as well. I like the fact it's, it's not really advertising. No, there's nothing wrong with advertising. I just don't, I think the way I like to work is not just do something and then hand it over, but building these relationships and helping people focus on the customer. It's what I really love about it. Yeah, and you've obviously been quite successful building relationships in your career. As far as I could tell, looking through LinkedIn is one of the things I like to do before these conversations, (laughs) is that you've been in the most senior, if not very close to the most senior design leadership role in the companies that you've worked for since about 2013, so for about eight years. When you first took on your very first senior leadership position in design, mm-hmm. cast your mind back. What did you think being a design leader was all about? And given where you mm-hmm. are now, how has that changed for you over the past eight years? Well, I don't know if I had kind of role models as much. First thing I, I happened is I was sort of promoted to people who'd previously been peers. And that was a bit of a disaster because I, I just didn't know how to act. And I, I apologized for being promoted. I'm really sorry I got promoted and you know it it just felt like I was letting them down somehow and just really weird psychology and it took me a while to sort of realize that some people I really like but the people who were like you know really slacking and letting other people pick up the pace and I was really worried about sort of addressing this with them in case they didn't like me and then I realized well I didn't really like them either so it didn't matter so I had managed to let go of this need to be liked and I was started more clear about what I thought like fair and good behavior for your team was and sort of be able to sort of help people understand that and bring a team together. But generally I've been brought in and sort of built a team from scratch seems to be, or that I've maybe worked with two or three original people, but then I've hired a huge team and that's amazing because you're able to shape the culture. So hiring people that have, you know, again, sort of honest and direct and really care about the customer and, you know, strong opinions lightly held and who are able to have like a really good debate about something without taking it personally and people who are you know, supportive teammates. And so you're able to shape that culture. And that's one of the joys of leadership. You're able to shape a really healthy culture where people really care and respect each other. And that's been one of the joys in my career. I wanted to ask you about strong opinions loosely held. You know, that's something that I believe in and mm-hmm. it sounds really great and it's great when it's working, but we do fall in love with our own ideas, yeah. particularly <laughs> in a, you know, in creative industry and creative professions like design. How do you make that work as a, as a leader in a practical sense with your team? Or how do you know if it's not working and what do you do if it isn't? Well, there are sort of processes to follow of checking your assumptions, of mm-hmm. shipping just a little thing and seeing how people react to it. You know, is it a button? Do people click on the button? Does the button, maybe you're, instead of building a, an entire feature, you maybe like just the smallest thing you can ship to see if people want that feature and how they would interact with it. And that way you're removing yourself from the equation. You know, you have your opinions, you test them, you're wrong, you're right, and then you just continue to learn. Nobody knows everything. So I think having this humbleness and thinking, well, I have no idea exactly what's going to happen, but let's try it. And being okay with failure, because you don't learn. If you're sort of really brittle and scared of trying something and it goes wrong, then you're um, you're never going to learn anything. So I think being comfortable with saying, you know, having an opinion and saying, I really think we should do this, and also being conscious of when it's not working, like, how do you measure that? What's the KPIs? How do you know that this has got the right data, that you've tested the right thing? So again, it's that 
rigor around designing something. It's not just making something look really pretty. It's not the kind of designer I am. Um, I don't do UI. It's, I think it's more the thought process because um, we were talking earlier and I've got a philosophy degree, which is like basically, although it rendered, rendered me completely unemployable, it did help me ask questions. So it helped me, it taught me how to think and how to ask questions and how to be wrong and how to debate things and how to think clearly about things. And that's been incredibly useful, as useful as my second master's, which was all about design. And those two combined has been super helpful. Not, it wasn't planned, but it's turned out brilliantly. Yeah, and look, there's a couple of things in there. Your second master's has a wonderful name. I think it was a master's of hypermedia. And yeah, I, when God, I saw that, I was like... Eyes. It shows how long ago it was. That's when the web had hyperlinks, oh my gosh. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah, yeah, 100%. Yeah, hypermedia. I loved it because I, I used to, I put a tweet out the other day uh, asking if anybody in, in the Twitterverse had previously worked at a company that described themselves as new media, which again is Oh my one God, of those, yes. Yeah. I worked yeah. for someone after my hypermedia degree, I worked for a company that did new media. Yeah. I'm, and I, I designed DVDs. Yeah. This is yeah. not DVD, yeah. CD-ROMs. This is how old I am. Yeah. If there's any kids exactly. listening to this, they'll have no idea what that is. Exactly. <laughs> I know. This is when like... So, when you sort of take a step back, it's like, oh my God, I'm really old. I, I remember CD-ROMs and hypertext and new media. I don't feel it, but that's how I know I'm old. Coming back to this notion of learning how to ask questions, being comfortable mm -hmm. having opinions, being comfortable with being wrong. You mentioned your first master's helped you to mm -hmm. be comfortable with some of those things and no doubt you've refined that over your career. This is actually a bit of a theme if anybody's listened to multiple Brave UX episodes that comes up with my guests and uh, it's really curious to hear this come up with you as well. As, and that's that we as people for most part of our education in the West at least, we're not very comfortable with having opinions and voicing them for fear of being wrong. And at least to me, I feel like this is a, doing a great disservice to well, the world and ourselves and design. How do you encourage people that you're leading who may not be as comfortable as you or I voicing our opinions and, and being willing to be wrong? How do you encourage them to embrace and adopt that mindset? It's an interesting you say that, you know, there's this fear of being wrong. The, the whole scientific method is that you're continually being wrong. And I think we've almost forgotten the scientific method, you know, because people, this whole, with recently with COVID, uh, people thought it might, the vaccine might work in one way or that COVID might spread in one way and they were wrong. And now people say, no, they've been completely discredited. They were, they were wrong. But actually, oh, no. it's yeah. pure, purely the scientific method of you, know, that you have a hypothesis and you're wrong and it's okay. And then you've learned something by being wrong. And it, yeah, we're, maybe taught that in science at school, but not really. We're not really taught, like we've taught the philosophy of science or the Western philosophy of, of um, hypothesis and refuting it. And so anyway, I've, I digress. I think no, that but maybe it's, 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 not, it's fundamental, isn't it? That's a fundamental yeah. basis for how we engage. And it, is, it does sometimes feel like at the moment we're slipping back into the dark ages in terms of yes. our mentality of looking at what's going on, particularly with the pandemic. It's true. And yeah, opinions like sort of, you know, feelings and opinions are as important as sort of rigor it's very interesting we could talk about that a lot about you know <laughs> the um what's happening to be the way that people communicate and to our media but we won't maybe we'll do that mm. over a beer sometime yes, but yes good. i think <laughs> i think um sort of modeling the behavior you want so you know being mm. comfortable being wrong or admitting you're wrong so modeling that and you most teams and organizations you have a sort of set of objectives or behaviors or things that you need to know in order to see what level you are and what you need to do to get promoted to the next level. So making that almost ca canonical, sort of codifying that, you know, you should be comfortable with ambiguity, with uncertainty, and you need to make yourself comfortable with it if you want to progress to the next level. So making that really clear and modeling it and sort of praising people for this and doing case studies that um, show this or you have team meetings and you get someone to talk about their project and they, they talk about how they were, they thought this was going to happen, but actually something else happened when we used the data to find this. So just reinforcing the message in a whole variety of ways. And, you know, the, I think the worst possible way of designing is this sort of, you know, the design hero, the genius, the lone genius that goes into a room and comes out with some kind of beautiful thing. And, and that might be great for print and brands, but for something that people are actually living with and using, it's, you know, you have to use 
data. You have to spend time understanding the customers. You have to experiment and you have to continually improve both in this sort of small sense, you know, like improving buttons or small frictions, but also experimenting to know what feature you should build next or what big bets you should take. Nobody has the answers. The only way is to sort of unpack everything and do small experiments and small um, value tests, some small MVPs, like proper MVPs, not just a shit website, but you know, most people think an MVP <laughs> is like a shit version of something, but an MVP that really helps you understand, is my hunch right? Or is this thing I'm going to do right before you invest any time in building it? So I think that sort of rigor is really helpful. Also getting people to think with that product mindset, like, should we build this feature? If we build this feature, you know, what were we not doing? Why are we spending all the engineering effort? Is it actually going to bring us value? Is it going to bring the customer value? What do we have to do? Do we have to retire something else? So being able to think really holistically around every sort of step of the design process and become a real partner to product and to technology that between you, between those three disciplines, you're able to understand what's the least we can do for the maximum effort. And always thinking like that, I think the, trying to encourage this way of thinking is is how you get people to be comfortable with ambiguity. I want to come back <laughs> to what you said at the very beginning, and I'm in danger of uh, stereotyping here, and so, but I'll do it anyway because I think this is something that's worthwhile discussing, and that is that being vulnerable enough to demonstrate to your team your direct reports, particularly at the level that you've operated where you've had 100 people effectively in your reporting line that you're willing to be wrong. That strikes me as a very brave thing to do, but it also strikes me as not necessarily embodying the dominant masculine <laughs> business culture that we operate with in tech, which is 80% male and 80% white male, to be fair. Like yeah. being vulnerable as a male is not usually a character trait that is embraced by many male leaders. Now you're obviously a female, and yes. not not just a female, but you're a, a woman who has uh, achieved executive level design roles. So that makes you a very rare leader in the field, and that's objectively speaking. And you've managed to do that, exhibiting leadership traits that are possibly not the common, not the norm. Has the you know, ascent? I think, oh, I was going to say I probably would have got on better, and probably being achieve more in for my own career and if I'd been kind of a bit more like maybe not decisive is the word but you know more kind of like forceful and direct and this kind of alpha male type thing but then I don't think the product would have been as good you know I don't think um so I think I'm still learning to how to balance the you know making sure that I have that I'm presenting myself in a way that is as effective as it can be in these male dominated places and also creates a great team culture and also creates a great product. And that balancing act has is, is been very difficult. I can't say that I've got it right. It's definitely the reason I wanted to join Digitas. It's got a female CEO, first female CEO I've worked with. She's fantastic. And just a very different kind of culture, a different way of being. And the chief creative officer is a woman. And that's the other reason I joined Digitas, apart from the opportunity of doing sort of thinking more broadly than product, thinking about the full experience, but also the opportunity of working beside these two very, very senior women and learning from them. And also not having to have this, you know, kind of alpha male thing, not well, having to lean into that too much, but maybe a bit more true to myself. Yeah. So that alpha male thing, you know, is this a real consideration or has this been for yeah. you? I know you can't speak for other people, but as you've been sort of coming up through the ranks, if you like, and getting yeah. to where you've managed to get to, has this been something that you've been mindful of and you've you've had to navigate? Oh, totally. I think everybody does. Yeah. You know, as a small working class woman, you know, definitely, you know, I've often been the only woman in the room and maybe not, sometimes not the only public ex-public school person in the room. And, you know, I've definitely been the outsider and it's been difficult. And I'm sure if I'd maybe had a better mentor or someone to help me navigate, I would have been much more successful. So I think, yeah, I've, I've had to sort of learn as I go. And uh, I do mentor sort of younger people as well, younger women to try and help them navigate this. So maybe, uh, you know, I, I think I definitely, had I been more sort of speaking the business talk, coming with a bit more of a sort of alpha male attitude, I'm sure I would have been much more successful, but maybe I wouldn't have been true to myself and I wouldn't have had 
you know, enjoyed working with the people that I enjoyed that much. So it's definitely a balancing act. My wife, she's a ophthalmology registrar. So she's uh, got one, one more year of training until she is uh, almost, a, or she'd be almost a consultant at that point. As you can imagine, medicine's very male dominated as well, but most of the yeah. trouble that Rebecca's had with her professional journey has actually come from other women, which is, <laughs> which is ironic. Yes. Um, but, but you yeah, know what, this is, oh, sorry, I keep accidentally speaking over because right. there's a slight lag, but I don't know if this is something that we should touch in on, but sometimes the other women, you know, who've kind of gone before have had to be, you know, that kind of almost verging on aggressive, very, you know, taking the sort of real alpha male traits and they've maybe like, you know, they're even more hyper male than the the men because they've had to do that to succeed. So then it becomes, you know, they're like, why why do I have to do that? And you don't. I don't know what psychology is going on. But yeah, definitely this one particular woman has been dreadful. But apart from that, I've, you know, I think I've had some really great supportive women too. Jane, I want to pick up on something you said a little bit earlier about mentoring other women mm -hmm. now that you're a senior leader. What sort of things are you telling them? How are you helping them to better navigate their careers? Lots and lots of it is about office politics and about how they present themselves and how they talk and how they deal with imposter syndrome, how they deal with their nerves, how they deal with disagreements or people trying to steamroller them. And it's really interesting. There's when I was more junior and I mentored people more junior than me, a lot of it was like, here's the technique you should use or here's this particular tool you should use. But now it's all about navigating and trying to protect who, people in your team or trying to make a project happen or trying to make sure that processes are followed and really helping people find their voice and, you know, not get sort of talked over or not feel that they're inadequate. As I said, imposter syndrome is a real thing for so many people. Or, and I don't think, I think things are getting better now, so much better. So obviously I'm older as we talked about, but when I started, when I was younger, there was, there was some older women, you know, I think who'd, what well, a couple in particular, I think who'd had to become almost like, almost a sort of cartoonish version of a, you know, tough, tough badass. So they could like, they could get on. And I've not really seen people having to behave like that now. I do think things are getting better. I think people are more conscious of, you know, privilege and giving people space to speak and not looking like a jerk, you know, so I so, do think. So were they embodying Maggie direction. Thatcher or something? Is that what sort of comes to mind <laughs> yes, for you? Yes, yes. Yeah? Yes, a bit of that, yeah. Whereas now I think people are, you know, there's lots of different ways of being and people are more comfortable with different ways of being and people are, I think, given the space to be themselves in a way that, you know, hadn't certainly, you know, gosh, when I was much younger and I was witnessing these older people and how they behaved. and But yeah, it's still not easy. It's definitely still not easy. You, I think you have to develop a bit of a, a thick skin. And then you also, as a designer, you have to learn to speak business. Business is a language. That was something I did not know how to speak. Like, what the hell is a KPI? What does it mean? Like, um, you know, what's the revenue? And, and that's, I know I observed as well, sometimes marketing was able to dominate the conversation about customers because the marketing people had numbers. So they were able to say, well, right, we did this and it's resulted in this 2% uplift, but then perhaps the product, the brand people were saying, well, we changed this, but they weren't able to measure it or they weren't able to, it was a bit more fluffy. And so the marketing were able to drive the conversation a lot more because they were talking about money and revenue and business and numbers, which had this really like hard, sort of factual, quite recognizable impact in a way that some other, you know, design perhaps doesn't. So that's the thing to learn as well, is to try and talk about design in a much more kind of impactful numbers, um, revenue type way. It took me ages to learn that. You know, I wish somebody told me that years ago because being able to kind of assume this this way of talking and it helps people understand like why you're important. You can't just say, well, users like it or that is, doesn't mean anything. You have to you have to construct a narrative about what you're doing and why you're doing that that will resonate. And so it's almost like you have to do user research with your organization. Not just with your users, yes. but you have to do research with your organization to think like, who's in charge? What sort of things matter to them? You know, what's, what, how do people talk? How do people act? How do I, how am I going to kind of camouflage myself as, and get people to listen, you know? And that took me ages to learn as well. I wish somebody told me that too. It's, you know, to take a step back and listen and just see how things work. And, you know, don't try and change people's mind by telling them what they should be doing like a particular technique. People don't care. You know, you have to talk about what the outcome is for them in a way that resonates and, and is important to them. So that's that's been my big advice. People are so often, there's a stage in your career when you get really hung up on methodologies and process and why you're doing something and actually it's meaningless. 
You just have to think <laughs> about what is the impact you're having? What's, and what's the least you can do to have the biggest impact? And then how do you mm. tell people about it? Yeah. Be friends with the spread, spreadsheet, but also be yes. friends with the one pager. Yeah. yeah. If, if you don't know how much your like, you know, how much your business revenue is and what your targets are and why you've contributed to them, even if you can't really, you know, quantify it, but what you've done, you think that and you're not telling people about it, then you're not really going to get the recognition that you need. Mm. Yeah, well your your language you're failing to communicate with the business yes. and your language is falling on on deaf ears. Yes. I want, want to, want to come back to the context of mentoring these uh, young and upcoming or younger and upcoming uh, female leaders. Is it more important for them to be authentic or to be professional? I don't think that's a binary question. <laughs> I think you have to be both. You know, you can't be, you'd absolutely have to be both. You have to be professional, you know, but you can do it by still, you know, being human and being funny and not having, you know, you're, we're, we're working in design. We're not like barristers or something. You can still bring <laughs> yourself to work, <laughs> but you know, you definitely have to be a professional. You have to understand the, the culture of where you are. You had, you would, if you were working in a trading company or, you know, like um, the FT, you'd probably be different work than if you were like um, a startup or, you know, one of these like funky advertising agencies. So you really, I think have to you have to think about how you how you fit in, but in a way that's still true to you. So yeah, both. It's not a binary binary, one or other. You also were talking about needing to speak the language of of business and communicate to your other stakeholders yeah. with numbers and in a way that makes sense to them, so that you can actually affect change. Mm-hmm. One of the gripes that design designers often have, particularly in enterprise, is that they feel like they are viewed as the colouring in department. Yes. How how much of that is actually our own fault? Oh, that's a good question, isn't it? A hard one to answer. Well, I think a lot of certainly more legacy businesses or big enterprise businesses that haven't got that product mindset, then design can be sort of ended up colouring in. And if you're in an organisation like that, you know, either you leave <laughs> or you maybe have to have some small projects and you have to start changing the conversation. Design is not about what things look like. Design is about purpose and about the outcomes and it's about the experience and this is why it matters and then you can't just tell people you have to show them but it is easier in some places than others but yeah definitely design is seen as being sort of colored in or the order takers you know go and do this for me Andy Blood did a very interesting thread on Twitter like you know you know the expression hippos highest paid person on the organization he's like hippos actually know more than you as a designer you're just as arrogant as a designer hippo has the full context you know the hippo understands business so I do why do you think the hippo should listen to you as a designer you should listen to the hippo and I thought it's a really interesting reframing so I think you have to try again it comes to understanding what your that person's your internal client so it's actually not that different being in an agency because you have if you're a designer and you're working with these you know big stakeholders they're your internal client and you have to sell to them and you have to get them to buy into what you want to do and you have to show them results and otherwise you will just end up you know being a colorer inner yeah you, you mentioned the importance of showing design and we've obviously talked yeah. about the sort of quantitative aspects of being able to at the leadership level communicate with the business about why we should be doing certain things the trade-offs that we're making mm-hmm. the reasons for taking a risk and pursuing value that might be different to what you thought before i remember reading something that you'd said or maybe watching something you've said while you're at the telegraph and i realize this is going back a, a, a little while now so if things have changed let me know but you said that you found that your team and i'll quote you now um, you said they got a better solution faster when they all took part in solving the problems. And that was in the context of observing research. You also recommended that very senior executives, so people that occupy your type of position now and across the business, get in, involved and observe what's actually going on. And my question to you now that you've sort of seen what your other leaders are uh, at your level now are, are doing the things that they're having to contend with in their work weeks, don't these mm-hmm. people have better things to do than go and watch customers use product? So you've actually asked me two things there. The first one was collaborative decision-making, and that was actually talking about cross-discipline, so developers and product, and I still think that's absolutely vital. 
because if you you are get a completely rounded view of the problem and you're able to come the designer might come with research and a view of the customer and the, the developer the tech person might tell you that something's easy or difficult or might propose a completely different solution and if the tech person didn't know about really what problem they were trying to solve they might not be able to propose the correct solution and product person has to make the decisions and the trade-offs so you really the great product work is done i think with all three people talking about the users no I, I wouldn't get like you know ceo to come and watch usability testing but there's different kinds of research and some that's really really impactful there's some where you're talking about a proposition or a big problem and you can package this up and get them to watch it you know we actually had lots of people come and do watch some customers at the telegraph which was pretty incredible because they'd never actually met a customer before some of them and they were making decisions without really knowing about the customer so yeah if you if you can somehow i know it's a bit of a cliche or a, a be the voice of the customer loads of people say we are the voice of the customer but they're not there's different ways of representing that and there's different stories you can tell but i think actually telling the stories of real people that are using your product or brand however that is is really really important and that's one of your jobs as a designer or a researcher is to be able to be that voice and explain to people or the rest of the organization why they should do x rather than y i heard today i work beside a woman who's ex-amazon who's just joined digitas and she was telling me a story that in every amazon meeting they keep an empty chair for the customer even if jeff bezos is in the meeting you know he would stand or somebody would have to stand i'm sure just keep that chair empty and it's the chair for the customer and that's just so that everyone's there is continually thinking about what the customer needs and i think having this customer mindset to do that you have to actually understand the customer and that's the value that design and research can add that's humility that story right there of keeping that seat empty for the customer that's a really powerful and humbling demonstration of just how important the customer is to the business yeah if you don't and have a customer you don't have a business really yeah, I know. And and this is, I think people intellectually understand this, but you mentioned earlier, just a few seconds ago, that people had never even met a customer, yet they were making all these big, important decisions about how the customer experience would be shaped. And, you know, we do in enterprise in particular, and as businesses scale, we, we have increasing levels of abstraction that yes. we put in the way. And I don't it's know where true. I'm going with this, but I'm keen well, to hear actually, your thoughts on it. <laughs> I think one of the and interesting this is the two kind of views of customers you've got the customers in aggregate which mm, is all the data and all that's what, yeah and that's used to make decisions and, and you know quite rightly so because you understand patterns and you're able to understand people across different contexts and different devices and you're able to see changes you're able to see indicators but often what's missing is the qualitative aspect and this is another jeff bezos quote i think it's jeff bezos would have to check this which is if the anecdote contradicts the data, I believe the anecdote, which just seems really counterintuitive at first, but actually you realize that you can have enormous amounts of data and it's really great and it helps make you know, fantastic decisions. But sometimes to have that breakthrough innovation or to really understand what the key thing is or to really you know, be able to be innovative or to transform, you really have to understand people's hopes and fears and the problems they're experiencing and you have to have the qual. And I think it's very difficult to innovate from data because data is lagging. It's stuff that's already happened. But if you have qual, if you talk to people, you're able to sort of predict the future. You're able to say, oh, well, people have this problems and we fix this problem in this particular kind of way. Then, you know, here's something new that's good. And that's how innovation happens. So I think it's great that you have data, but you need qual and you can't have qual without data. And a lot of places I think are missing that kind of qual and that innovation. And often they'll just see user researchers doing a bit of usability testing at the end of the project, which is like meaningless, really. You know, that you could use data for that is meaningless. You need qual and proper research right at the start when you're trying to understand what problem you should solve and who you're solving it for and what problems they have and what they really need, you know, not what they're telling you, but actually, you know, trying to understand their lives to the point where you you know that there's some there's a solution there that you've never not maybe not thought of before and that's where you should put your effort and your money into researching is these trying to really understand people's lives and how your business can connect with them rather than like doing a usability test anyone could do a usability test really it's and we're not saying that usability testing isn't important but we are saying no. that there are better ways of de-risking well this is at least what i'm, Absolutely. I'm hearing there's better ways of de-risking yeah. yes and I think early. That a lot of, early and often and small. Mm. And I think rather than waiting and you do your research and it's a usability test at the end, which is great, it's really important. 
but it's not, it's not going to transform your business. It's not going to change things. It's not going to give you that step change. It's not going to make, it's not really going to de-risk anything because you've already built everything <laughs> or you've already spent time in designing something. If you want to de-risk, I think it's, it's understanding, you know, these trends and your customer and what they need in their lives and then understanding how, what you should do for them and then experimenting to see if you're doing the right thing and if it's actually worth doing. And it's, so it's lots of, lots of points of talking to the customer rather than, starting with assumptions, building something, and then doing one round of user research at the end, it's, it's not de-risking. And in fact, for that kind of user research, you could you know that's where you could do testing at scale, optimization. You can use data to see where the funnel's broken, what problems people are having, and you can be a little bit removed from customers. So I think you need, you need the full picture, you need qual and quant, and you need it at different times, and you need it for different purposes. Yeah, you've got to be really smart about what you use and, and when. Mm -hmm. Now, thinking about the dynamics, we were talking about the cross cross functional collaboration. You know the different disciplines yeah. that are involved in making product, and you know that can sometimes involve SMEs that actually sit outside the product or yes. design organisation totally. as well, right? Now, you've got this sort of mantra, and I really like it, which is so managed by consent, not by consensus. And I thought yes. that was that was really powerful at least where my mind went with that when I thought about what mm -hmm. that might mean. But then I also am aware that that's probably one of those things that, again, that is easier to say and harder to achieve because what, it, yeah. what at least I see it relying on is a huge degree of trust amongst well, people totally. to operate in that way. How have you shaped your design orgs to have that trust in mm -hmm. each other and fr from the rest of the business to work with consent and not consensus? I think it, it depends on the organization, but ideally you would have teams that own a bit of the product. So you have, you know, the big product vision and you understand where the product's going, but you have teams that own that bit of the product and consent, not consensus. Usually that's about the product manager. If you have a really great product person, the buck stops with them. And you give, as a designer, a researcher, you give them all the information and the arguments to say that this should be happening. But it might not, or it might have to be done in a different way because a product manager has to think about, you know, tech restraints, about budgets, about feasibility, about how you would sell the features. So eventually they have to make the decision and your job is to say, okay, they've made the decision. Maybe I don't agree with it, but that's their decision. I've given them all the information I possibly can. How can I help them de-risk that decision? How can I help them be as successful as they can? And so I think it's to do with... Um, teams, autonomous teams to do with like features or parts of the product rather than the design team. Because the design team is kind of like home base, but really for a designer to be effective, they have to be working in this collaborative way on a particular problem. And it's not, it's not like we're a sort of centralized design team that, you know, somebody comes to us and said, oh, I need, um, I need two wireframes this week. You go, off you go. That's, that's not really how you get the great work. It's, um, it's by having people that really understand the customer and understand the problem. And even if it's just for a short period of time, but they're, they're able to take in the data, the qual, the quant, the um, understand the tech feasibility, and they're able to collaborate. And then you need a really strong decision maker who decides what they're going to do next. Yeah. And with that decision maker calling the shots as to what happens next, it sometimes means that the thing that you've poured your heart and soul into and the, the research that you've carried out or the design that you've created uh, may not go ahead, right? So there's this mm -hmm. risk inherent in, in the in the way in which we work. And this is probably in all professions, but particularly in design that we overinvest in what we do and we get our feelings hurt when it doesn't see the light of day. Now you, I'm going to quote you now. You've said, to be a good designer, you need stamina and you need to be comfortable with failure and ambiguity. So when you are hiring for your mm -hmm. design organization, you're sitting, say like I'm sitting across the table from you and I've applied for a job yeah. to work for you, Jane. How do you work out as the design leader, the hiring manager, whether or not I'm someone who embodies that stamina and that comf comfort with failure and ambiguity? There's a technique called behavioral interviewing, which I've been trying to train myself in and read lots of books and talk to people who do it really well. And you ask people to tell you stories about that help you uncover. Do they have stamina? So you don't say to someone, do you have stamina? You might say, tell me <laughs> yes. about you know, a time that it was really difficult to get something shipped. What did you do? Mm. How did you feel? Tell me about a time that, you know, you, you might have like done a presentation and then it got cancelled at the last minute. Tell me about a time. So you try to think about some examples that would 
would be the opposite, you know, the things that might cause you to need stamina. And then you ask people to tell you stories about it. And then you see how they reacted, like what their thought process, what did they do? What would they do differently next time to see if there's a growth mindset? So it's, it's interviewing people is the same as user research. You know, it's, it's getting people to tell stories and, and really listen and unpack what they're saying and to ask really good questions to try and like dig more deeply into it. Yeah. But I also yeah, think that, as I, like, well as, I like that. As a as a designer, you shouldn't be designing too much before you might do a like a prototype or a vision something, but then you know it's a prototype or a vision and that's okay if it doesn't happen. But if you're really spending your time designing stuff that, that might get shipped, you you shouldn't. You should be doing the least amount of work until you know something is is actually going to be shipped. And that's up to you and understanding how the product's going, understanding what the roadmap is, like what is the least you can do to know that you're right? And then you do the next little thing. So it's like increments. So spending like three weeks designing something end to end is just an absolute waste of time. You might have done in the past and you kind of throw it over the wall to some developers and they don't know what they were doing. And But actually the way for things to, I think, to get to, again, sort of innovate, to have efficiency, to de-risk is for things to do the smallest thing possible and everyone to understand what's happening and then do get some data. Oh yes, that's what I expected or not. And then the next smallest thing, the smallest thing might be a button or it might be a whole feature in an app. It depends, but you definitely shouldn't be doing huge amounts of stuff before you know it can be shipped unless it's for a purpose like, you know, vision or an experiment or a, some kind of design spike, but then you know why you're doing it and it's okay if it doesn't happen. Yeah. Yeah. That's really key. I think that's a really key bit of advice there is what's the least you can do to know whether or not you're right, not over invest in the work and not get caught up yeah. too emotionally in, in, in what you're doing. That yeah. said, in, mm-hmm. in enterprise, particularly enterprise at scale, is often the constraints that are external to the, the immediate team that you're working in. You know, we're talking about policies here and other things that may affect design, which can frustrate designers and mean that things don't happen necessarily as quickly as they'd like or in the way that they would like. How do you encourage resilience in mm-hmm. your team to deal with the ups and downs of, of just dealing with an imperfect world? <laughs> oh, I think, yeah, it's, that's a really interesting question because the world is imperfect. Although, um, God, who was the philosopher said this is the best possible world and, oh God, who was it? I'll have to Google that later. The best mm. of all possible worlds. Um, so <laughs> yeah, it could be a lot worse. So I, I think it's, I mean, I think it, maybe it's just about being a bit more grown up. The, the world is not very perfect and, you know, things don't happen and you know it's great to be passionate about your job but it really is just a job you know it's not like you're trying to like save lives it's you're like shipping a feature to make somebody a lot more money you know and maybe you're passionate about it because you can see loads of users are having an absolute nightmare and you want to make their life better and that can be frustrating but just because you think something you know it's okay I think it's okay just to say well that didn't work out or it's a fine line to tread because you have to really I think care enough to want to do a good job but also not care enough that it's like take it deeply personally and you know maybe that's the thing you know going you should get beaten out of you at the start of your career you'd like lots of design grits and everybody telling you it's wrong and then you're there's you and there's the work and knowing sort of defer being able to divorce yourself from that I think is a a sign of maturity as a designer Yeah, I mean, we've obviously been talking about the, the sort of designer in the trenches now, and let's zoom out yeah. and talk about design leadership. I listened to your talk, The Three Stages of Leadership, which is a fantastic talk. I really, really got a lot of value from it. It's something that you said in there that I thought was particularly insightful that I really had to ask you about today was that you said that director level experience at director level and above, you need to find out where the actual power lies in the organization. I'm paraphrasing, yeah. but that that's pretty much what you said. And I thought yeah. that was really, really interesting. Why is that so important for design leaders to do? So I think, I mean, as I said earlier, it's understanding the culture and how decisions are made. I mean, if you... When you you go into a new job, one of the things like I always try and find out is like how are decisions made? You know, is it always somebody has to have a final say, or do you go round and quietly talk to people, and then you all get in a room and agree, or do you go into a room and you all have an argument, or is it the loudest voices, or actually you've always got to do what the CTO says because, you know, and then you find these things out, and then if you're like you, your job is to try and provide top cover for the team and make things happen and get budget and make, you know, try and if you're, maybe there's an old fashioned waterfall way of working, get buy-in to try something different and get people excited about it. So in order to do that, you have to know who is 
going to be for it and against it and you have to understand like what their fear might be and who actually owns the budget who you have to go and convince and why and who might be on your side and why not and how you talk to people so yeah it's, it's a bit of game of thronesy i think yeah, if, you sounds like it. In, <laughs> if you just go blundering in and go right everybody we have to get into triads and then we're going to do this user research and because i say so it's never going to happen we've just been speaking about power in the context of understanding where the power sits and the wider organization I want to bring this down to you now because I also heard you describe your relationship with your own power and it was quite a, this is terrible, quite a powerful moment in the talk. <laughs> I see what you did there. You said that you, and again I'm paraphrasing, you didn't realise your own power and that you yes. used to sit in meetings at Moo at the time in the, where the C-suite was present and not say very much. Yes, and actually, it was a job before me, but yeah, there's this. This is exactly, this is what I mean about finding your voice and having something to say and saying it in a way that's actually relevant and resonates with people. Yeah, I had no idea how to operate this. Yeah, it's the job, a couple of jobs before me, and yeah, I got promoted and I didn't have a mentor. I didn't have anyone explaining. Suddenly, I was like flung in this room. I was the only designer, the only woman, and they're all talking about these three-letter acronyms and about money and, and I didn't have any data and I was the whole thing I was completely out of my depth and yeah and I just realized that that's that's kind of you need to you as a designer you should be training yourself in that bit as well I know there's now there's like design MBAs and MBAs about product and you know there's I think it's it's become a wider problem you know I must have been like an early adopter of the problem it's you know I just what I did, uh, the rest of the business, it was, there just wasn't a connection. It wasn't relevant. I didn't know how to talk about it. I didn't know how to confidently disagree with people. I would, um, the fact that there was like the CEO there, I didn't know what to say to him. The whole thing was just overwhelming and terrifying. So that was one side about that. Yeah, I imagine a lot of people listening to this either do or have done and felt like it felt like a sim felt similar to what you, what you did. Now, what's your what's your message for them? Well, you're not alone. And I think one is, well, I mean, it's probably just as I've been saying, it's like, what is relevant to these people? You know, what is relevant? What are they interested in saying? How can you tell a story about what you do? This may going to help them realize how important what you do is, because it really is, you know, it's not just coloring in. And how are you going to help them understand it? And how are you going to help them see the importance of being customer centric and the importance of good design, and but in their language? And how are you going to get confident? to be able to like maybe disagree or to understand what they're talking about, to be able to couch your disagreement or your recommendations again, in this kind of business speak, which you're not really taught at design school or anything. It's just, it's, it's, it's very separate. So I think, you know, if there, you can get like funding to do one of those design MBAs, then do it. I think that's, that's, if you want to kind of get to that level, that's really important. And also do you want to get to that level? Cause you don't really, you won't be doing any design anymore. Do you know, it depends of like what frustrates you. For me, it's kind of like every time I'd kind of felt like I'd fix something, I'd realize actually I'm frustrated with this thing and it's actually, it's going to be a bigger problem. And now I want to fix this. And then I, and so, so I kind of just kind of fix bigger and bigger problems. So that's kind of, I think what, my career has been mostly accidental. Yeah, I did, I did wonder about problems. that because you moved from the sort of practitioner path to the manage, managerial path. And I think you described that as, as almost like an accident. And yes. then at the time there wasn't really the, the, you know, principal designer type roles and other. There um, wasn't. And I wanted more yeah. money, frankly, I wanted more yeah. money. And the only way to get more money was to be promoted to management. I was like, okay, then I'm, I'll do it. You know, I wouldn't mind a bit more money. That's <laughs> a double-edged sword, isn't it? <laughs> and then I was like, oh, this isn't designing. What the hell is this? And then I didn't know what this was. It's taken me about 10 years to figure out and I still haven't figured it out. But yeah, you're just, you know, you're like, that was my, my sort of message as well. You're really good at your job now, prepared to totally suck at another job because <laughs> it's a completely yeah. different job that nobody prepares you for. Yeah. And, and there's something like, there's something interesting in that as well. And I had a chat with Marty Kagan earlier on in the year. Oh, I and love he Marty Kagan so much. Yeah. Oh, fantastic. You know, really, really clear thinker and, and has had a wonderful career experience as well before mm -hmm. he started Silicon Valley Product Group. But we were talking about his time, uh, I believe it was at HP, his first job out of college. And he had most most of the time he was there he had two mentors or two people that were coaching him from different one one in his discipline and someone else that he sought out in another part of the business which was in product because he started in engineering and there was this real emphasis and I, I believe it still exists at, at least at some of the companies in silicon valley of coaching 
the next generation of leaders and they're very serious about it. The, the best companies in the world are very serious about it. Not many companies do that. And I feel yeah. that that is doing ourselves and even through your own experience that you've just described, Jane, that's doing, that's done you a disservice in terms of mm -hmm. not being able to accelerate your understanding of how to manage. And you have to yep. learn a, a lot through trial and error, as opposed to yep. having someone help point you in the right direction, which could be useful. I know. Think about the, the waste of money. There's me, you give me a promotion, you give me more money and I'm not being effective and other people aren't being effective. And then I might leave because I feel terrible. And then you have to hire somebody and then are they the right person? And then the other people and they may like you because the culture is awful. And what a waste. Yeah, but I think like a lot of people are just kind of dropped in and it would make perfect sense to to identify sort of talent or opportunities and, and really help grow people so that they stay with you and they stay with the organization. I mean, most people, I think, average about, I mean, in fact, in tech, it's like insane. It's like an 18 months tenure in London because people are going from startup to startup to new job to bigger job. You know, you've seen lead people like work, they've been working five years on the same salary. So people aren't really motivated to stay around. You know, they, they go to get different stock options. And so companies should be thinking about this. Like, how do you invest in people? It's so important. And so I think really under underserved people aren't given the, so the confidence and the counseling and the coaching and the mentoring and the training. And really companies should be investing in this. Yeah, and I think sure. this is because yeah. we're all stressed out of our brains with not enough time, or at least we perceive yeah. there's not enough time. And I think that's worrying for people in general as life life goes on and, and where we're taking this economy. But also, it's like you're saying, it's quite damaging to the culture of an organization if people are changing every 18 months and, and yeah. moving on to the next. It's very yeah, mercenary. It is. It's very mercenary, you know. Don't quote me on that figure. It was, I can't remember who said to me, but it was. I remember being astonished because I thought, well, two years is kind of okay, you know. But 18 months just seemed to insane. I don't know where I need to, I need to check that data. But um, yeah, yeah. Well, so if you, so you should give people a reason to stay, which is that you're not just paying them more, but that you're investing them that they're learning and that they're, you know, that they're feeling that they're growing in the job and that you really, that it's not just about coming to, you know, doing the work, but you're also understanding what it is that you need, you're going to do next and being prepared for that and feeling that you're growing, growing as a person, maybe, you know, becoming more comfortable with ambiguity or whatever it is that it, I think it's really important that companies invest and they, they really don't. And it's a, yeah. And it's interesting because if we've seen the rise of the chief people officer, but I haven't really seen the sort of like um, a reflected rise in kind of mentoring or growing people, you know, it's, it doesn't, maybe it's because I'm coming from startups. I don't know, but there's definitely seems a lack of investment in mentoring and training that somewhere like HP did, you know? Yeah. That's incredible yeah. sort of growth um, grounding that Marta Kagan had. And the, there's something else that's going on related to this labor market that we're in at the moment. And I believe it's global. And I think COVID's had a lot to do with this going remote. So th there's companies in New Zealand like Xero, who are one of our um, product success stories, who are now mm -hmm. quite happy to hire people all around the world on a remote basis. And I know this has been, been happening as well in companies outside of New Zealand where New Zealand talent is now sitting at home in their bedrooms working for overseas yeah. companies for much bigger wages than they can secure yeah. here. And the, th the, th the sad story um, in all of this, and there's possibly a couple of threads here, but one I wanted to ask you about, which is related to coaching and developing the next generation, is there's a huge amount of gusto to hire mid-career and senior design talent and yet the barrier to entry for junior design talent to actually get into the industry yeah. that is supposedly booming, at least to me, seems to have never have been higher reading some of these job ads it's of what crazy. people's expectations are. Yeah, what, what's going on Absolutely. there? But it's not just it's not just design. You know, I'm, I'm a huge Reddit fan and there's mm. a subreddit called Recruiting Hell where people share <laughs> all these insane requirements for entry-level positions, like five years' experience for being an internship, like what is going on? I don't know. Is, is there people scared of risk? But the it seems to be like junior um, roles across the board. You know, I've seen it in engineering as well. So I don't know. Do Maybe there just isn't this culture of mentoring and growing people and like, you know, taking a risk on people and hiring for potential rather than actually where people are. There just seems, I think, hiring and mentoring and growing people has, has really become very broken. Yeah. Yeah. And it's very short term. It seems to me mm -hmm. to be very short term. I mean, what, like, just extrapolate this out a decade. Where does this leave us as an industry? Where does this leave design? Yeah. 
one product and engineering. Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. Maybe it's risk, or people if people think why should I invest in someone who they're going to bugger off after two years, or I don't really know. And then everyone's like you say is really busy, so you haven't got the time for people to be trained. Maybe there's not a budget for someone to be paid who's not actually doing anything except actually you're investing. So I think hiring is not seen as investing. It's like quite tactical. You hire someone, they do the job, they go. But it would be it'd be great if like the industry could think differently about how you grow talent and how you hire people and maybe take like I know that's actually the advertising industry's been pretty good at that, like new blood, DNAD. There's all sorts of like student awards and taking people straight out of art school or or whatever. And it'd be great, maybe that's something we could we could bring into design and product design actually you know competitions bringing people out of uni sponsoring people but there's yeah there's a huge gap there interesting maybe that's you've given me something to think about well let's change gears and and talk about something else which is this challenge that a lot of design leaders face when working with product in particular which is the cadence of design and the cadence of delivery and the different expectations that sit around that now there seems to me to be this at least a bit of a culture clash between delivery and design culture and they're usually managed in two separate parts of the organization as well which may have something to do with it we can hear your experience of this you know how have you balance that tension between we've got to ship something and we've got to make sure that what we're shipping is actually adding value. I don't think there is a tension. There That's shouldn't be a tension. Yeah. I think if you do it right, you know, if you've got a well-structured organization, there shouldn't be a tension at all. You should be maybe shipping five experiments and then you, you then increment on the one that's one or that you've done you've got like a, a roadmap and you've kind of like it's a bit fuzzy in the way out and then you're incrementing towards product vision and you're doing that with tech and you've got a team that's all working together when it works well and marty kagan talks about this so brilliantly but when it works well it's like you it's like a machine you know big experiments little experiments you know this roadmap you know you've got my old boss chad used to talk about operating in three horizons you've got like the near horizon so they're like you know it's, things are pretty solid or you know what you're going to ship you're just incrementing towards it things are a bit maybe mid horizon it's a bit fuzzy you might do, be doing some research while you're sh- the rest of the team are shipping and then you've got big bets and you're kind of working across the horizons and this is i mean this is like why great product great tech and great designers are so impactful because if you get that sort of cadence right and you get that kind of combination of delivery and discovery right you're like, it's an absolute rocket ship. It's, but people really struggle and it does fall apart. You know, if you're kind of chucking, I don't know, Figma files over the wall to a developers, then yes, I can see that being really problematic, but you, you ideally wouldn't be working like that. You'd be working in these teams and it's going to be, I mean, but that's me coming from a kind of like, you know, sort of digital transformation and sort of startup kind of background where this is the way of working. I think it's going to be an interesting challenge taking this into clients. And that's one of the reasons, again, why I want to be at Digitask, because I've seen the power of working like this. And I want to go and tell people, like, you know, you don't have to be doing, like, you know, and things are just grinding slowly to a halt because yeah. tech aren't quite sure, like, what they should ship first from this, like, file. And then, you know, I've seen organizations grind to a halt like this. And in fact, the Telegraph, when we started, things had sort of ground to a halt. And we did a thing called the laxative project to sort of clear the pipes to show that you, you know, instead of everything grinding to a halt because you're chucking like loads of designs over the wall to tech and the tech guys are like, well, which, which, what do I build first? Like, what do I do? Like, you know, and if then everyone spent ages doing QA and, you know, like the whole, there was just so much waste. But this way of working, which is like really efficient, reduces waste, reduces risk, makes people really empowered. You work at speed. So showing this, the power of this to different organizations, maybe legacy organizations, is definitely got to be excited because it's, it's an amazing way to work. Jane, this has been such a great conversation. You're oh, such an inspiring you. female leader, and I oh, really want you. to give you this space right now to share a message with other female design leaders or females that are aspiring to be design leaders. What's your greatest hope for them? You know, What do you really wish they would would know or achieve what's the thing that you want them to go forward and do i mean maybe not just female leaders i think anyone who is not of the sort of model the archetype of you know this sort of thrusting businessman but people who want to <laughs> find their own way to be you know to be leaders you know 
whether you're like gay, straight, maybe shy, neurodiverse women or whatever. But yeah, there's diversity is power. You know, the world is diverse. We, we fly often the way that products are built or decisions are made is, is come from a very sort of like mono, monocultural view. So you're, it's an amazing opportunity to, if you can be confident and find your voice and find your place to be able to make, come from different viewpoints. It makes products better. It makes everything better. So yeah, I think it's just be confident, believe in your power and yeah, and learn some business lingo. <laughs> very important. All very important yeah. things to do. That's your KPI. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just, yeah. Do treat, treat the organization like you would treat a product. Like how does it work? How are you going to operate in it? How are you going to be effective and who's your audience? Great. Really important messages, Jane. I've really enjoyed the conversation today. It's been so great to hear your stories directly and in person and the insights that you've come across during your career. Thank you for so generously sharing those with me today. Oh, Brendan, you're so lovely. Thank you. It was lovely spending time with you. You're most welcome. Jane, if people want to find out more about you and all the wonderful things you're up to, what you're doing at Digitas and building that team, what's the best way for them to do that? Um, add me on LinkedIn um, or Twitter. So my Twitter handle is MS Jane Austen. So it's my name, Ms. Jane Austen at gmail.com. So they're probably the two ways you can get hold of me most easily. Um, definitely. I'd love to hear from people. You know, maybe people don't think they're quite right for a role at Digitas. Come and talk to me anyway. People might want to be mentored or I could find you a mentor or any questions or you might want to, you know, get some advice about how to change things in your organization, or you might even want to work with Digitas rather than for, you know, I just love to talk to lots of people. I think it's a really exciting new chapter working in an agency because it is solving these, again, I always said it was like, you know, thinking about the next problem to solve. So this one of like sort of connecting everything so that your email and your CRM and your product and your marketing is all connected. And if you're making this a really nice frictionless experience, so not just a great product, but just a great experience. And that's that's the challenge we have. We're going to solve at Digitas. No, I have no doubt that you'll do a stellar job of resolving that challenge. Thanks, Jane. And to everyone Thank else you, that's Brendan. tuned in, it's been great having you here as well. Everything that we've covered, including where you can find Jane and Digitas and all the great things that are going on will be included in the show notes. If you enjoyed the show and you want to hear more great conversations like this with world-class leaders in product design and UX, don't forget to leave a review, subscribe to the podcast, and also tell someone else about the podcast if you think that gets some value out of hearing these wonderful conversations that we have on Brave UX. If you want to reach me, you can also find a link to my LinkedIn profile in the show notes, or you can find me on LinkedIn just by searching Brendan Jarvis, or you can visit thespaceinbetween.co.nz. That's thespaceinbetween.co.nz. And until next time, keep being brave. Hey!